Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and this is Last Week in the Church. On today's menu, the Pope finally, against all odds, is in Iraq. As we speak, uh, we're going to break that story down from every angle. Then, uh, a new front erupts in Catholic tensions over the COVID vaccines. We mark the 10-year milestone of a major martyr. And finally, Francis puts an exclamation point on the kind of American bishop he wants to have. So that's what I'm going to be serving up this week. Do stick around. All right, and we're back. So, uh, look, uh, I'm a bit of an amateur cook. My favorite kind of meal to prepare is a multi-course Italian meal. And the typical percorso, as we would say in Italian, that is the typical sort of journey, uh, begins with a small antipasto, just a little taste of something. Then you have a primo piatto, usually a pasta dish. And then you get to the main course, right? The secundo, which is the meat and the potatoes or whatever you're going to have. Today, we are going to mix it up a little bit. We're actually going to begin with our main course because today, Pope Francis touched down in Iraq. Uh, it is the first time a pope of the Catholic Church has ever visited the nation of Iraq. This is the culmination of a dream that has endured more than 20 years. St. John Paul II wanted to go to Iraq during the year 2000, the great Jubilee year, marking, according to the Christian calendar, 2,000 years since the birth of Christ. Uh, John Paul wanted to follow the footsteps of salvation in history. He wanted to begin in Ur of the Chaldees with, uh, with Abraham. Uh, and then travel to the Holy Land. Uh, unfortunately, back then, negotiations broke down with the regime of Saddam Hussein, uh, in part over security concerns, in part over the expectations that the Hussein regime was going to have for the trip, photo ops with the Pope that would imply an endorsement and things like that. For the intervening 20 years, uh, for a variety of reasons, security and, and papal health and geopolitics and so on, this trip has been uh, essentially off the table. Uh, however, Pope Francis decided that on the other side uh, of the lockdown that was imposed by the COVID pandemic, when he finally resumed international travels, the very first place he wanted to go was Iraq. Now, let me tell you, this was a trip that faced mammoth odds uh, against it ever happening. Because, first of all, let's start with security. It's not like the security situation today is better than it was 20 years ago. If anything, arguably, it is significantly worse. Uh, and all of that was punctuated in the run-up to this trip by two suicide bombings in a market in downtown Baghdad and rocket attacks on the city of Erbil in Kurdish-controlled northern Iraq, both Baghdad and Erbil are on the Pope's itinerary. Nevertheless, he's going. Uh, second, it's not exactly like the coronavirus has gone away, you may have noticed. Uh, in fact, Iraq is now dealing with a major second surge uh, of the coronavirus on its own territory. Ironically, uh, they have imposed a series of restrictive measures, which include the closure of papal, uh, uh, sorry, of places of worship during the days the Pope is going to be in town. So in theory, 
there aren't supposed to be any Catholic masses or other Christian worship services while the Pope is around, although that, let me tell you, is a restriction that Catholics have been defying with bravado uh, since these restrictions was announced. Uh, this past Sunday, for instance, there were extraordinarily well-attended Catholic masses up and down the country to prepare for the Pope's arrival. Uh, and so, but there is, another, nevertheless, there is a fear uh, that the Pope's presence could create super spreader sites. That is, despite the government and the Vatican's efforts to make this as much as possible a small-scale private event or series of events, uh, there is fear that the Iraqi people may simply defy all of that. They are, to be honest with you, they are not exactly distinguished for their adherence to government-imposed restrictions on anything, uh, including the coronavirus. Uh, and so there is fear that this trip could end up multiplying uh, instances uh, of the pandemic in the country. Despite that, Francis is going. Uh, just as a footnote, Pope Francis has received the coronavirus uh, vaccine. Uh, all the members of his traveling party, including the journalists on the plane, which includes Inez San Martin of Crux, they've all received the coronavirus vaccine, but certainly the Iraqis on the ground, most of them have not. Uh, and so it remains to be seen what's going to happen with that. Despite it, the Pope went. Uh, this, this trip also happened despite the fact that the Pope is battling his own sciatica. That's that painful nerve condition. It's not life-threatening, but it often makes it very difficult for him to sit for long periods of time or to stand for long periods of time in one spot. Uh, despite that, he is going. So this is a trip uh, that under ordinary logic, the Vatican, because the Vatican is a risk adverse institution, ladies and gentlemen, under ordinary logic, it would have said no way. Uh, but this is very personal to Pope Francis. He decided, as in his own words, the Iraqi people have waited long enough. So we can think of this trip in terms of basically three stages. The Pope will be there from today till Monday. Today, Friday, uh, is basically about the nation of Iraq. So uh, after the Pope landed, he was received at the presidential palace. He met with the civil authorities of the country, including the president, Salih, <clears throat> and the Pope delivered his message, in a sense, to the nation and also to the international community about the importance of Iraq uh, and the importance of solidarity with Iraq. Tomorrow, Saturday, uh, will be the Pope's message to the Islamic world, and particularly Shia Islam. Uh, the Pope is traveling to Najaf uh, in Iraq, which is considered one of the most sacred sites, if not the most sacred sites in the world, for the Shia branch of Islam, which is about 10 to 15 percent of the estimated 1.6 billion Muslims around the world. Uh, he will be meeting with the Grand Ayatollah al-Sistani uh, while he is in Najaf. Uh, and here's the thing. Uh, although the Vatican has worked very hard at carving out good relations with Sunni Islam, because, of course, it represents about 80 percent of the global Muslim population, there is a sense in which Shiites are the most natural conversation partner for the Catholic Church in Islam. I mean, if you think about Islam, the two main branches are Sunni and Shia. And in Christianity, the two main branches are Catholics and Protestants. Well, in a sense, the Sunnis are the Protestants of the Muslim world. Uh, they don't have clergy. Uh, they believe only in the Quran, not tradition. Uh, they're a very kind of low church uh, expression of religiosity, if you like. 
The Shias, on the other hand, do have a clerical hierarchy. Uh, they have the equivalent of saints. They have popular devotion. Uh, they believe in scripture and tradition, the hadith, the, the sayings of the great imams. Uh, and so there is a sense in terms of the physiognomy uh, of religion uh, in which Catholics and Shia Muslims uh, are much closer to one another. And experts in Catholic-Muslim dialogue will tell you that. So uh, this is very important. It's not the Pope's first visit to a majority Shia nation. He actually visited Azerbaijan a couple of years ago. Uh, but certainly nothing on the order of the importance of Iraq or the importance of Grand Ayatollah al-Sistani. So all eyes will be on that meeting uh, on Saturday to see whether the Pope is able to carve out a modus vivendi with Shia Islam in the same way he did when he was in the United Arab Emirates in 2019 with the Sunnis signing that document in human fraternity with the Grand Imam uh, of Al-Hazar, the most authoritative institution in the Sunni Muslim world. And then finally, Sunday is really directed to the Christians in Iraq. The Pope will be in Erbil, the capital of Iraqi Kurdistan, which is where Christians took refuge during the years of the ISIS occupation of northern Iraq, the Nineveh Plains, between 2014 and 2017. But most poignantly, the Pope will also be visiting Karakosh, one of the roughly dozen Christian villages in the Nineveh Plains, kind of the cradle of Christianity in Iraq. It was gutted during that period of ISIS occupation, burned and destroyed, the people driven out. They are desperately now trying to rebuild. Pope Francis will be there to deliver a message of support and solidarity for what is arguably the most beleaguered Christian community anywhere in the world. As an American, I want to note that the ability of those Christians in Karakash to rebuild is largely due to the generosity of American Catholics. It was Aid to the Church in Need, which is a papally sponsored foundation that supports persecuted Christians, and particularly its American branch that provided funding. It was the Knights of Columbus. It was the Christian Near East Welfare Association, which is another organization based in the States that coughed up most of the money and most of the logistical support uh, to make this reconstruction project possible. It is, in a sense, Dunkirk in reverse. You know, you remember the dramatic story of Dunkirk. In that case, it was to get, ish, to get British troops out of Calais and get them back to Britain. In this case, it's to allow desperate Iraqi Christians to remain where they are. Uh, I think it is the most dramatic, uh, most inspiring, and in some ways, most underreported Christian story of our time. Uh, the Pope is going to be there on Sunday to shine a spotlight on it, and I think American Catholics can feel a special degree of pride uh, about how we helped to make that possible. Uh, we will, of course, have full coverage of the Pope in Iraq on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. Be checking there throughout the weekend. It will be well worth your time. All right, second item on our menu. This would, in a normal Italian meal, be our primo piatto, and why not? Uh, there is a new front uh, in Catholic tensions over the COVID vaccines. You may remember that when Pfizer and, and Moderna first announced that they had developed uh, vaccines uh, to treat the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, there was a, a kind of frisson, a ferment 
uh, in Catholic circles about whether it was morally acceptable to use those vaccines because while neither of those vaccines relied on aborted fetal tissue in the production process, they did rely upon aborted fetal tissue in the testing process. Basically, we're talking about two fetuses that were aborted voluntarily in the 1960s. Their tissues were turned over for scientific research. Uh, stem lines have been generated. Now, by today, 2021, we are thousands of generations removed from those original uh, aborted fetal tissues. But nevertheless, uh, they, they have carried forward. Uh, and there was some concern. There were a couple of Catholic bishops in the United States that said that they would not take the COVID vaccine because of those concerns. That prompted the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops and ultimately the Vatican's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith to put out statements saying it is okay to take these vaccines, that is the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca, and the Moderna, rather, sorry, the Pfizer and the Moderna, uh, because the cooperation in abortion is so remote uh, as to be morally insignificant. And the gain in terms of protecting public health is so significant that it outweighs that remote moral concern. Uh, now, what has happened in the meantime is that other vaccines have come on the market. Most recently, Johnson & Johnson uh, announced a vaccine. And the advantages of this vaccine are, number one, it is not a two-dose vaccine, it's a single dose. And number two, it doesn't require storage at ultra-high temperatures, which makes it easier to distribute. However, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine also utilized aborted fetal tissue, not simply in testing, but also in production. So uh, a number of authoritative Catholic spokespersons in the United States, including the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, the Archdiocese of New Orleans, and others, have put out statements saying that if Catholics, that first of all, that Catholics should get the COVID vaccine, but if they have a choice between, say, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine and the Johnson & Johnson, they should take the Pfizer or the Moderna because it is less morally objectionable. Now, this has caused some consternation uh, among public health officials uh, who are worried that anybody trying to pick and choose among the vaccines, that is going to slow down the vaccination process. It will make it uh, more difficult to achieve the kind of critical mass that is necessary to ensure herd immunity so that the disease is no longer transmitted. Uh, and so they have criticized this decision. Uh, the network that I work for, CNN, carried a major news story yesterday trying to suggest that this statement from the U.S. bishops was at odds with what the Vatican had said earlier, although I would note that what the Vatican actually said is when the, there are no morally preferable alternatives available, under those circumstances, it is okay to take whatever vaccine one has access to. So I don't really think it, this is particularly different. Uh, I think what the U.S. bishops are trying to say is that one should stay as far away from complicity in abortion as is reasonably possible, but at the same time, you also have an obligation to get the shot because you got to protect the community. Uh, so. Uh, look, uh, you know, what I think uh, is that 
Uh, it is always fun. It is always sporting uh, to try to set up some kind of opposition between the U.S. bishops and the Vatican, particularly in the Pope Francis era, uh, when the U.S. bishops are perceived as more conservative and Pope Francis is perceived as more liberal. Uh, but in this case, I just don't think there's a great deal of there there. Uh, I doubt it's going to have much impact on the distribution of vaccines. We'll see how it plays out. Uh, all right, next story. Uh, during this past week, we marked, we marked the 10-year anniversary of the assassination in Pakistan of a Christian martyr, a Catholic martyr, by the name of Shabazz Badi. Now, you very well may have heard the name of Shabazz Badi because he is that rare Christian martyr in our time who has become a global celebrity. Uh, Badi was a very well-known activist and politician in Pakistan. He was actually the lone Christian member of the cabinet uh, in Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan is, of course, an overwhelmingly Muslim nation, largely Sunni. Uh, Badi uh, was the minister for minorities and equal opportunity. Uh, he was a Roman Catholic, uh, and he was a vocal advocate for the rights of minorities in Pakistan. Uh, in fact, in the months before his assassination, he had been outspoken in defense of Azia Bibi. Now, Azia Bibi was an illiterate Catholic mother of four and a farm worker from the Punjab region of Pakistan, which of course borders India. Uh, she had, basically there had been a dispute between her and a few Muslim farm women uh, and they had accused her of saying something bad about the Prophet Muhammad, which under Pakistan's blasphemy laws uh, is, punish is a punishable offense. Uh, th th these Muslim women reported this. Azia Bibi was arrested. She was tried in, which m in what most people regard as a kind of kangaroo trial in Punjab. She was sentenced to death. She spent 10 years uh, on death row in Pakistan until she was finally freed uh, under international pressure. During all of that time, uh, Shabazz Badi was a vocal advocate for the liberation of Azia Bibi and a vocal critic uh, of the blasphemy laws in Pakistan, which he saw as a threat not just to Christians and not just to other religious minorities, but also to Muslims, uh, to, to more free-minded, open, moderate Muslims. Uh, and, and so he battled uh, against this legislation. Uh, he was gunned down uh, in front of his home in Islamabad. Uh, his brother, Paul Badi, tells the story uh, that when he went to Shabazz Badi's room after his brother was killed to clean it out, what he found on his brother's nightstand was a Bible and a rosary. Shabazz Badi was a devout Roman Catholic for whom the faith was the wellspring of his social activism. Uh, after five years passed, so in 2016, the bishops of Pakistan launched a beatification cause for Shabazz Badi. That cause is still open. Uh, I personally have proposed Shabazz Badi as the patron saint of contemporary Christian martyrs because here's the thing. Let's run the numbers. The low-end estimate for the number of new Christian martyrs every year, that is, Christians somewhere in the world killed for their faith, 
is around six or 7,000. The high end estimate is around 100,000. What that works out to is either one new Christian martyr basically every hour and a half or one new Christian martyr every five minutes. No matter where it falls, this is a human rights and religious freedom scourge of mammoth proportions. And the thing is, most of these victims are anonymous. They are ethnic minorities. Uh, they are linguistic minorities. They are people of color. They are poor. They live in isolated areas. We never see their faces. We never hear their names. They die. They live and die in obscurity. Shabazz body is that rare example, that rara avis uh, of a contemporary Christian martyr who, because of the inspirational power uh, of the position he held uh, in his life story, is someone we do know. Uh, and in that sense, he can put a face and a voice on this, this, this untold story that deserves the, the interest and the mobilization of all of us. So, 10-year anniversary for Shabazz body, a moment worth recording. Finally, this week, Pope Francis announced a new nomination to what many people would regard as the most powerful and most important department in the Vatican, and that is the Congregation for Bishops. Now, uh, if you don't know, uh, the Vatican, like every bureaucracy, is divided up into different little cubbyholes, right? Uh, so you've got congregations. Generally, they do most of the heavy lifting. Uh, you've got councils. You've got dicasteries. You've got secretariats. Uh, they are all of varying importance. But the Congregation for Bishops uh, is arguably, if not the most important, certainly, like, if you were doing... <clears throat> like, I'm a baseball fan, right? If I were going to do a top three third baseman in baseball right now, okay, we could argue about who should be one, who should be two, but most of us would probably agree on the top three. Same thing here. We could argue about whether the Secretary of State or the Congregation for Faith or Congregation for Bishops is most important. We would all argue, they're the, we would all agree they're the top three. The Congregation for Bishops, its job is to recommend the appointment of new bishops to the Pope around the world. Ultimately, it's up to the Pope to decide who gets to be a bishop. Excuse me. Ah, sorry, I'm too excited. Ultimately, it is up to the Pope to decide who gets to be a bishop, of course, but the Congregation for Bishops reviews the recommendations that come from the Pope's ambassadors around the world and then they give what's called a turna, a list of three names to the Pope. In 96, 97% of the cases, the Pope just appoints the top name on that list. So the Congregation for Bishops has enormous power uh, in deciding who's going to be a bishop. Now, already, Cardinal Blaise Supich of Chicago is a member of the Congregation for Bishops. This week, Pope Francis appointed Cardinal Joseph Tobin of Newark to that body. Uh, and here's the thing, on the Congregation for Bishops, you have English speakers, you have German speakers, you have French speakers, you have Spanish speakers, you have Italian speakers. And there is a natural tendency to defer to the guys in a particular language when the question is a bishop in their language group. 
So everybody else will defer to the Americans when it's an American bishop, just like everybody else will defer to the Italians when it's an Italian bishop, which means, in practice, Cardinal Supic and now Cardinal Tobin are the kingmakers when it comes to deciding who's going to be a bishop in the United States. And here's the thing. Both Subic and Tobin are Pope Francis guys. That would mean, politically, they would profile as center-left. The most obvious application of that would be they are not antagonistic towards the Biden administration. They would have differences over abortion for sure, but they would also be open to collaboration on immigration and poverty relief and climate change and any number of other things. Ecclesiastically, they would be sort of moderate to progressive. So they would not be big fans of the old Latin liturgy. They would be open to lay empowerment, greater roles for women, and so on. All of those Pope Francis hallmarks. And with these two cardinals now sitting on the Congregation for Bishops, it is a deadlock certainty that future bishops in the United States, at least during the Pope Francis era, will share those characteristics. So mark it on your calendars. As of this week, Pope Francis has set in cement the kind of bishop we are going to have in the United States going forward, at least as long as this pope is in charge. All right. That is our show for this week. Now, two quick notes. You can find full coverage of all of the stories we have talked about on the Crux site. Again, that is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic commentary. We are in the middle of our online fundraising drive on the site. So if you do go on the site, you'll see a pop-up or you'll see a solicitation, an invitation to help us out. <coughs> if you can, we would be deeply grateful. We are not looking for very much. Maybe what you would spend this month on a hamburger or downloading a movie from Amazon Prime or whatever it is. Uh, but anything you can do is of enormous help. Uh, we are independent, but that independence doesn't come cheap. Uh, we need your help to maintain it. Secondly, if you like what you were seeing here on Last Week in the Church, please give us a like, give us a share, go on the social media platform of your choice uh, and tell your friends and neighbors, go forth and make disciples of all the nations. We want to spread the word uh, about what we were doing at Crux and what we were doing here on Last Week in the Church. All right, we will be here next Friday, uh, same bat time, same bat channel. We will have full ex post facto coverage of the Pope in Iraq and much more. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.